0: you, it's encouraging, it's inspiring, and you leave better than you showed up. Enjoy. Anybody else just want to keep, keep it going? Anybody? That's where I was just jamming in the front row, almost missed my cue. I'm so glad you're here. My name is Drake. Welcome to City Church. How are you guys doing? Oh, welcome to City Church. Man, last couple weeks, we've been a little flat. That was a good one. Can we just do it one more time? How are you doing? Oh. Yeah, it's consistent. That's really good. I'm so grateful. Hey, welcome to City Church. So glad you're here. Real quick before we kick off, we're kicking off our brand new series through the letter of Philippians through the summer. And we have these really cool scripture journals. Uh, It's got the the book on one side and then uh, open pages and uh, places for notes on the other. And so I've got some friends in the back. If you don't have one of these yet, we're asking that you help us cover the cost of these. They're five bucks. You can do it digitally or any way uh, at any pace. It doesn't really matter. You have to do it today. But we'd love to put one of these in your hands starting today. And so if you don't have one of these and you want one, raise your hand, and then these lovely ladies will come around and uh, hand them to you. Don't be awkward and not raise your hand. Raise your hands. They're ready to go. There you go. Yeah, three of us. Well done. All the rest of you, like, man, I am not committing. To that journal book thing. Hey, this is awesome. One of the best ways to learn and grow through the summer and in our spiritual journey, thank you guys so much, is using these tools. Raise them to where they can see you, otherwise, you know, they're just going to start popping in people's laps there. Um, these are going to be an incredible resource just for you to take notes, to kind of follow along. One of the beautiful things we get to do as a church is we take a summertime season to walk through a book in the Bible. I want you to think of the scriptures as a library of writings, and so imagine, you know, you kind of roll into the library and you pull this one off the shelf. That's what we're walking through this summer, and it's gonna be a verse-by-verse space. It's gonna be amazing, really excited for walking through, but again, you want to have that to follow along with and to use it throughout your week. So there you go. That's your Philippians tool. Um, again, if you're if you're kind of new or newish to City Church, listen, no matter where you're walking in on your spiritual journey, you are loved, safe, and welcome here, and we're so glad that you're here. So however we can help you take some next steps in your spiritual journey, that is our desire. And here at City Church, we are committed to helping people find their way to God from where they are by practicing the way of Jesus together in Boulder. And the, wh- the main ways that we do that are through weekend gatherings and what we call our city groups. Weekend gatherings are what you're a part of right now, in person and online. In person is the best way. Online, we're grateful that you're there. But also, our city groups are how we get closer. It's how we grow in our relationship with God. It's where you find encouragement and accountability. The last two weeks, ending our series that we just wrapped up on our podcast and YouTube channel, talked about creating and cultivating spiritual family. And so our city groups are where we are formed as disciples, and we make disciples, and we live on mission together. And so we encourage you to be a part of both of those spaces. Now, today, as we kick off this series, I've got to do a little bit of groundwork. Next week, you get to hear from one of our church planters in Denver, David Yerdahl. He is amazing. He's going to crush it. I bring out people who speak better than me so that you, like, you're like served really, really well. Um, so and, and then hopefully you don't miss me as much, right? That's the goal. You're like, well, that's not hard to do. Okay, that's fair. But... The week after that, Maddie is going to be speaking, come on, everybody loves it when Maddie speaks, and so it's going to be an incredible series through the summer, we've got lots of our church planters and partners around the world that are going to be with us through the summer, and we're going to walk through this book verse by verse, and really, rather than trying to just surface level, make the Bible say what we want it to say, we're going to let it speak to us and find the encouragement that God has for us. Now, in this series, a couple of quick notes, sociologist Corey Keyes made this observation, you guys remember this small little thing that happened like two years ago, three years ago now, uh, like this COVID-19 thing. You guys remember that? It kind of, you know, it's just a small little thing. It didn't really affect anybody. But, you know, during that time, sociologist Corey Keyes made the observation as, as the world began to move into a post-COVID world, which is interesting that we even have to label it as that. But he, he, he began to notice, or, or the sociologist began to notice, that while many people weren't depressed coming out of the pandemic, they also weren't thriving and so there was this middle ground, I'll kind of show you a, uh, a little chart here, between depression and flourishing, if you will, or that's what a psychologist would call it, kind of the spectrum of mental health, between depression and flourishing. And he kind of just made the note that people, they weren't necessarily in deep depression, while that was definitely the case for many people. The majority of the population was not thriving or not flourishing, but somewhere in the middle. And he, he termed this unique, Phrase He coined this unique phrase during this season, and psychologist Adam Grant came along at the same time, began to wrestle with this same spectrum, depression to flourishing, and saying, man, what is it in the middle that's going on that a majority of our population is experiencing? and And he came to call this space the neglected middle child of mental health, which I thought was kind of funny. And then also likely the dominant emotion of our existing society. So while there are many people, we don't want to undermine uh, the space of depression by any means, most people seem to be stuck somewhere in the middle between depression and flourishing. So let me give you Adam Grant's quote to kind of explain it. He says, it it wasn't burnout that people were feeling, right? They they still had energy, or maybe this is how you feel today. It wasn't depression that people are feeling. we, we, We didn't feel hopeless. We just felt somewhat joyless and aimless, And when I read those two words, they like hit me in the middle, like there was something really resonating with me. And it turns out there's a name for that, he said. It's called languishing. So there you go. Why do you have a journal? So you can write down big words and impress your friends at lunch. That's why. So there you go. Use your journal, languishing. And here's the definition of languishing from Adam Grant. Languishing is a sense of stagnation and emptiness, It feels as if you're muddling through your days, looking at your life through a foggy windshield. And so let's go back to this chart. Between depression and flourishing is this place of languishing. And at first I'm reading this as an observer on the outside because I'm an optimist on my worst day. And like the glass is always half full, even if there's only some condensation in it, at least there's condensation. like that's where I am in the glass spectrum, optimist on a good day. And, and I feel like genuinely most of the time people ask, how are you doing? The, the genuine answer is great. like it's not this toxic positivity just putting on a face for you. like it's just kind of my disposition. But then lately, it's like over the last couple of I don't know if it's weeks or months because it kind of become, becomes a blur, and I try not to feel things internally if you know what I'm talking about. Eight on the Enneagram and so emotions are a weird thing to me and so so uh, a couple of things have happened in our family and over the last couple of weeks we've been i feel like running at light speed um and things are just really really busy And then as a result, because of that, there's just, you know, the the anxiety that comes with maybe being overworked and kind of a numbness to that. On top of that, recently Danielle and I had to put our dog down, which was a really, really sad thing for our family. It was our first kind of baby in the family, and we'd never had to put an animal down on our own. And all of a sudden, things that I didn't expect to feel were feeling, and and that's hard. And so in the middle of all of these spaces, um, I, I start to identify with the space of languishing, which I really don't like. Maybe you guys can be there, but I'm like, I'm not a languishing guy. I'm a flourishing guy. And I'm like, no, I think I've been in this space, stagnation and emptiness and muddling. Have you guys seen the Emoji movie? Have guys seen that movie where, like, the dominant character is the meh emoji? You know what I'm talking about? Like, that's, the, that's languishing. It's just meh. Like, that's the space of the majority of our culture, according to psychologists and sociologists. And it's really interesting to begin to process this space. So my question for you this morning, no matter where you are on, this, on your spiritual journey, is where would you plot yourself on this map today? And at the same time, um, Danielle just read a book by Bob Goff. Anybody, any Bob Goff fans in the room? Man, I love Bob Goff. If you've not picked up any of his books, he's got some incredible ones, but also kind of hate Bob Goff at the same time because, and, and I mean that tongue-in-cheek, but dude, he's like, I'm optimistic, but that guy blows me out of the water, and I'm like, oh, what a jerk. Like, he's got all these crazy cool experiences and stories, and you know, his kids almost die, but they turn out okay, and then he's like, how cool is that? I'm like, yeah, that's cool. You know, like, there's these spaces of all these amazing experiences and stories. He like, he's like in that place where he doesn't take himself too seriously, and he takes, his, takes Jesus quite seriously, and so he's in that really fun middle ground, and I'm like, ah, I really want that, and also, I don't like that guy. So I read his books to like you know, encourage myself and frustrate myself at the same time. So right now, I'm picking up the book that Danielle just told me to, and I'm in this place of, like, I feel like in that moment, God's like, yeah, this is where you are. Be honest. And I'm like, I hate being honest. (laughs) That's so hard to do. So listen, I don't know where you are. If you're not languishing, here's the deal. You probably know someone that is. And everyone in the room probably knows someone who also is struggling maybe on this side of the equation as well towards depression. And we've been talking a lot about that. And so one of, I think, the challenges is you and I also live in a culture where the American dream is supposed to be dealing with this space, right? And I find it interesting that the base of the American dream is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, okay? So life, check, liberty, that's guaranteed. The pursuit of happiness, as in good luck catching it, right? Like, go ahead, give it your best, but that thing is squirrely, right? Like, go ahead and give it your best shot, but... Man, I had all kinds of weird analogies that just came in my mind, and I'm just not going to tell them out loud because this is recorded. So anyway, the space of the American dream is interesting because most people, the, the, the pitch that you've been given culturally, is if you're anywhere here, well, flourishing already has a definition in the cultural context that you live in. And so then you need to chase after your culture's definition of flourishing. And so you might be in the room and you might consider yourself flourishing or close to it. My question would be, based on what definition? Because depending on how we define flourishing will depend on how we go back and forth on this line of mental health and emotional health and relational health. And so what is it that you hang your hat on when it comes to pursuing flourishing? Because maybe you find yourself in languishing and maybe you've been trying to deal with it and maybe some of those things aren't working. And so I'll just give you a few and you can kind of evaluate your own story, right? Maybe it's just the normal prosperity of kind of up and to the right, better jobs, more money, more time, good health. Those types of just normal American dream things, especially in Boulder. Any Boulder, Boulder people tomorrow running the race woo-hoo, go you. I'll watch from the sidelines. And so, you know, you, we, we have this space where experiences become to be, begin to take uh, the top tier of, of what makes life significant. Or maybe it's just like not having a life full of suffering and pain. It's avoiding that at all costs, especially if you're a seven on the Enneagram. If you don't know the Enneagram, we, we love it, okay? It's a really helpful stereotype that we love to pick fun at. Um, it's a joke. Guys, we're having fun. We don't pick fun. I, I'll make fun of myself, but not of you. But I have a, I have a wing seven, so like, Suffering and pain, I'm out on that. Like, that's not really my jam either. And so, um, it, it, that's why I'm languishing right now. Because I have had to walk through some things. I'm like, what is this? This new thing. Feelings? What? Like the Grinch, anybody? I'm feeling. That's how I felt. All right. So, Um, You know, what is the thing or the person that you set your hope on? You say, when I finally have that get there, then I will have joy. Then I will be content. Because whatever version of your happily ever after that you put over here in the category of flourishing, my question for you is what happens when you don't get it or you lose it? And obviously, this is going in a direction as Jesus followers, where if we hang our hat on anything but Jesus, it's movable. But what happens when you don't get the thing that you deeply desire or you lose the thing that was bringing your flourishing? And to be clear, listen, this is really important. As Jesus followers, desire is a good thing. Desire is a gift from God. Desire is wonderful. The the, the kind of sneaky space in the middle is when desire creeps into discontent. Discontent is really the problem that we're dealing with. And this is something that you and I experience a lot. Discontent is when it kind of creeps into that space of where I won't be happy unless I get that or have that or maintain that. I cannot be happy without X. That's where discontent creeps in, and that's when it becomes a problem. But desire on its own is a gift from God. And what's really ironic is a lot of the American Dream's version of flourishing is you get what you're after, you get what you want, and then you're still not all that happy, right? Right? Like, isn't it funny? Like, you know, you you have the perfect relationship, or you get married, and you're so excited, that's going to fix everything, and then you realize, like, you're all jacked up, and they're jacked up, and then two sinners got married, and now you have all these issues, and you're like, oh, this isn't as great as I thought it was going to be, but they're great. I mean, I would never say that about Danielle, but she could definitely say it about me, right? So that's the space of, like, whoa, we're two broken people trying to become who Jesus has called us to, and this is harder than I imagined, They don't do everything i want them to do and it's weird because they were expecting me to do everything they want like they want me to do and like we have this conflict it's a very strange space or you know you've always wanted a baby a baby's gonna fix it you have a baby and then it turns out they leak constantly out of multiple areas you're like, oh, this isn't as g- glamorous as I thought. Or you finally get the job that you thought would be it. And then it turns out that job also comes with 70 hours or 80 hours of work. And you're exhausted and you have no time for friends. And friends were a really big deal. And you used to hate the friends that would constantly dip on you because they were so busy. And now you're that friend. You're like, oh man, or you finally get the house that was going to make everything better and it turns out that the mortgage on that house is diminishing every other good thing that you had and now you have to work the 80-hour week job in order to pay for the mortgage on that. You guys feel that? Cool. I mean, I know none of us actually are dealing with any of that, but these are just hypotheticals, right? And so the reality is what happens when you get what you're after and it doesn't deliver or you lose the thing that you're after? And and here's what happens a lot of times because of like this American version, this Western version of spirituality, especially in following Jesus, when life gets hard and flourishing is not based on our up into the right definition of this American dream combined with Jesus, then the question most people are asking is, God, where are you? When health fails, God, where are you? When relationships break, God, where are you? When you lose a job, God, where are you? When you finally got that new car and someone door dings you in the Safeway parking lot, God, where are you? And we have these spaces of, and and that's a legitimate question, right? And by the way, this is a community where we are not afraid of hard questions, and there's good answers to that question. The problem with that space is if we use a definition of flourishing in those categories, then it leaves out a really important part of our faith. And that's Jesus himself. Think about this. Jesus had incredible joy and immense suffering. Jesus had incredible purpose and deep loneliness. Jesus had a peace that passes understanding, and he was born into poverty. Jesus was abandoned and betrayed by his closest and best friends, and yet he was flourishing. And so you've got to come to the place where you and I begin to wrestle with, okay, in following Jesus, what is his definition of flourishing? Because those were all included in his job description, And yet there's still something attached. So today the goal is to give you a vision so that that there's not, it's not like, hey, if you're languishing, try really hard over the summer to get out of it. Or, Or that's the advice that you give a friend. But what if there's something better, something much better that you and I can set our affection and attention on that actually brings life even in the middle of those hard things. Even when things in life aren't necessarily playing out like we planned, we can still be Flourishing. And so, the natural question is Is there a space in following Jesus that can move us out of languishing and give us a definition of the good life that actually leads to flourishing based on what Jesus is talking about? Is it better than the American dream? And, and tongue in cheek, the answer is yes, absolutely. And really, the question on my heart and on your heart today is, are we going to trust Jesus in that invitation? And so that's why we're going through the book of Philippians over the summer, is really hopefully it provides a pathway, some keys to life of unlocking the space between languishing to flourishing as we follow Jesus, to where hopefully, maybe by July, August, definitely by September, one of your friends comes up to you, hey, how's it going, man? I'm flourishing. Maybe maybe you don't have to sell it like that, but either way, you're like, man, I'm good. If you like Nacho Libre, so there you go. Um, so Scripture Journal, man, it's gonna be really valuable. You want to have that through the time. We're gonna go verse by verse through this this letter, and so let's get into it today. Today I've got two verses for you. You ready? That was my intro. You're welcome. Two verses today. Here we go. Philippians chapter one. If you're taking notes, I'll give you some context of what we're walking through. So I'm gonna read it real fast, and then we'll walk through it. Paul and Timothy servants of christ jesus to all the saints in christ jesus who are at philippi with the overseers and deacons so we're just going to walk through it together you guys ready number one paul Who is this guy, Paul? So previously, Paul was a Christian killer known as Saul. He was a super religious guy, shutting down the early church, doing everything he could to oppose the Jesus movement. Jesus meets him on a road to a city to go continue to persecute Christians, knocks him off his horse, blinds him, and says, what's up, dude? Something like that. That's the Greek literal translation. And and in that space he says, Why are you persecuting me? Paul Paul becomes convinced that Jesus is Lord and then becomes one of the most prominent authors of our New Testament, plants tons of churches in the Mediterranean, and is giving us the letter that we have today. He's also got Timothy with him, who is like Paul's right-hand man at the time, and I don't have time to give it to you today, but if you want to take this note, in Acts chapter 16, we see Paul engaging with this start-up church. So he's writing to a new church in the city of Philippi, much like you are a new church in the city of Boulder. City church just turned four years old. It would have been about that far along as he writes this letter to Philippi, and he was there in Acts 16, and you actually get to watch the very first process of this church starting. He's, he's rolling around just basically area to area, telling people about Jesus, starting churches, and then God says, I want you to go specifically to this area in Acts 16. Cool. He rolls in there, and then he, he goes to a, a women's prayer meeting because there's not a synagogue in this town. There's not enough Jewish men even to have They have to have 10 Jewish men to start a synagogue. They don't even have that, so it's primarily a Gentile place. It's a Roman colony, and so it's mostly secular. There's worship of the emperor. And so he goes to this women's prayers gathering down by the river, and he meets a lady named Lydia. And she's not a Jesus follower yet, but, it's, uh, but but the scriptures in Acts 16 says that God opens her heart, which is super cool in this moment as Paul's talking, and then she becomes a Jesus follower. And apparently, she was pretty wealthy and well off. And so then, as she becomes a Jesus follower, she invites Paul and his followers or his his, his uh, the guys that are with him into her home, and they start the first church in Philippi with this lady named Lydia. And then there's another girl. There's this demon possessed girl that like uh, uh, some some guys are using to get rich because she can kind of tell the future. And so then she's following Paul around the city as he's like talking about Jesus. And so then finally he like is annoyed by her, which is really interesting to me. You can go read it on your own. He casts the demon out. She becomes a Jesus follower. And then she's a part of the core team. And then he he gets in trouble because he's talking about Jesus in the city where they throw him in jail, which is super cool, right? That's on your bucket list. And so he goes to jail for being a Jesus follower. And then in the middle of the night, God uh, makes an earthquake happen to where the gates open, all the chains fall off, and they have a a, a guard in there who, right, if all of the prisoners get out, he's going to be murdered, he's going to be executed. And so then he's about to kill himself because he assumes everyone ran away. And then Paul's like, yo, we're still in here. And this guy's like, what the what? Why are you still here? And then this guy becomes a Jesus follower. So you have the core team of this baby church plant starting in Philippi. You've got Lydia, a wealthy woman you've, uh, who opens up her house. You've got uh, this demon-possessed girl that becomes a Jesus follower. And then you've got a Roman guard. That's the core team of the startups of, of of this church in Philippi. Let me tell you about the core chur- the core team here at City Church. When we started, we have a couple of generous Jesus followers, super cool. We handed out some tickets at a bar, and we ha- then we gained some new followers, and we had new people. We had some agnostics on our team. We had some atheists on our team. We got Buddhists holding the door. It was awesome. And then eventually, all of our friends be- begin to follow Jesus and get baptized, and this church is started... Off of a few generous people, some people becoming Jesus followers, and some faithful Jesus followers that are a part of this brand new team. And today, City Church exists because of how God worked in the early days. Now, what's interesting in this letter, Paul, kind of think of him as Pastor Paul. And and if you read the New Testament, there's a bunch of letters from him, about a third of the New Testament is from him. And he has a different tone in the letter, much like maybe if you would write a letter, which I know you don't do, but you know how you can give tone in your texts or like kind of make it do different things in order to kind of, it matters. Tone in text matters, or rather, it's super hard when you don't use, like you can't read tone. And so there's different tones when he writes. In a couple of churches, they're super dysfunctional. And so then he writes with kind of a really authoritative, I'm Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Like, hey, listen to me. There's authority here. God wants to tell you something. In Philippi, it's, it's the only letter where his tone is tender. People have argued that, that Philippi might be Paul's favorite church. And in this space, we actually don't see him call out really like any list of sins, like, like he might do in some of the other ones. I like, hate these are just dysfunctional. Get them out. Turn to Jesus. But rather we see, I man, this church is on track with who God is calling them to become. And so he writes this letter. And what's really interesting is in his tone, it's not, it's not, Paul, an apostle, but it's servants, and we'll get to that in just a second. But the occasion, let me give it to you. Why is he writing? Paul is actually in prison as he writes this letter. Okay, and a lot of famous verses that you might not even be familiar with, like if you saw them on paper, come out of this letter. And so he's in prison writing to his friends, and the occasion is in prison in that day you weren't taken care of by the government. Like if you didn't have friends to take care of you, to feed you, to meet your needs, then you were in trouble. And so consistently as Paul is in prison for his faith, Philippi has been sending help to aid in taking care of Paul in prison. So there's a couple of different reasons. He is writing back to say thank you for their generosity and taking care of him also the dude that they sent out there almost died he got really sick and so everybody's kind of freaking out about that and he's like hey Epaphroditus is okay so we'll see that he's probably going to take the letter back to this uh city in Philippi and then he also writes a couple he's thanking them he's also warning them against false teachers and then lastly he's going to promote unity over and over again so we're going to see a couple of different themes come out of this letter so that's Paul and the occasion, where we're going, what's going on in this letter. Let me go to the next word, servants of Christ Jesus. And I messed up. That's supposed to be highlighted servants, but Christ Jesus is kind of important too. So we'll stay there, okay? Servants of Christ Jesus, that second word. This is literally translated slaves, and I think the ESV and a couple different translations trying to soften that because we have some really horrific language and ideas around slavery as a result of, of what you and I have experienced in the Americas, if you will. But in this space, right, this is not a promotion of slavery by any means. It looks nothing like what you and I uh, um, have, have deep regrets over in the U.S. But this term, servants or slaves of Jesus, and this is a big identity marker. What you're going to see is Paul call out a couple of identity statements. This is who you are as he talks to them. And this is, this is probably Paul remembering Jesus' words in Matthew 10. Jesus would have said, hey, a disciple is not above his teacher, just like a slave or a servant is not above his master. And so Paul is writing with affection to this church, and he says, Paul, not an apostle with a lot of authority, but a servant of Christ Jesus, a slave to Jesus. This is the priority, and this is where unity comes from. What's really interesting is that later we're going to see that not only are they leading the way in this, but they also are, are then setting an example, that it's not just like your leaders should be servants, but that this is the posture of Jesus that we can all take up as servants. So I want you to think about that, like this space of identity. Um, and then, again, a couple of different like ideas here um, as we get into it. Saints. Let's go to the next word there. He talks about saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. So there's so the there's servants, a slave, like Jesus is the master, I get to serve you and other people. And then there's saints, which is really interesting. I don't know how you feel about that word. I didn't like grow up kind of in and around the Catholic Church, but I got some friends been kind of listening in, like how, how is the Catholic version of following Jesus, and, and they're like talking to me about it. And so the, the title of saint is, kind of, is a, kind of a big deal in the Catholic Church, right? So you have to, first of all, be dead in order to be a saint, because just a heads up, that's you know if, if that's on your bucket list okay number one die okay um, so so you have to you have to die um, you have to be then investigated and then and then said to be venerable as a dead person uh, then you have to then be called blessed or blessed I, I suppose depends on where you put the, the emphasis on the syllable there all right and then and then lastly you have to do three miracles from when you're dead and then like all of that happening you get to be called a saint by the pope in the Catholic Church. I'm like wow that's a lot maybe you know i was kind of interested but maybe not you know no one's called me saint drink anyway drake anyway so I'm, I'm good but here's the good news if you're a jesus follower from the scriptures we don't really see any of those things in the scriptures as a prereq you know what the prereq to be a saint is jesus check like you trust in jesus saint Woo! here we go congratulations you're a follower of jesus you're a saint add it to your resume next time you're in a job position hey so why should we hire you I, i'm a saint You know, that's great. All right, there we go. That's enough for me. So saint is part of the identity. Now, this is really interesting. Before Paul does anything, he calls out the identity of this church. Paul and Timothy, servants or slaves of Jesus. He's the master, not me. To all the saints that are in Christ Jesus. This is your identity. He starts with who they are, even when they don't feel like it or act like it. This is who they are. And then in Christ Jesus, this is really interesting because the identity is not found in their activity. It's not found in their behavior. It's found in Jesus. They're saints. Their identity is attached to the person and the work of Jesus. A couple of weeks ago, we were in a series on identity, and we talked about how everything, if you're a follower of Jesus, everything that's true about Jesus is true about you. And in the process, it's true of who you're becoming. And so in this space, he's calling out, he's reminding them of who they are. And then he says, not only in Christ Jesus, but at Philippi. This is the location that they're in. So hello, saints in Boulder. You, you're here. You have made it. Well done. That's the posture of this letter. Now, remember the core team. A wealthy, influential woman. woman. They had lots of women leaders. It was really cool. We'll see him talk to them. A Roman guard and his whole family and then a previously demon-possessed woman. That's the core team. And so you know when Paul's writing, this church is going to be much larger than that at the moment, but there's a deep affection in his heart. He goes back to that moment when, when this church was started, and these are the people that he remembers, and he includes with the overseers and the deacons. And so it's not just like a, hey, this is to everyone else. This is to the entire church, including the leaders, men and women. Overseers is another word for pastor. And so he's writing to the entire church together, As in, there's a unity here. There's something that we're in together. It's a really beautiful place. Now, you need to know about Philippi, a couple of things. East of Rome, it's a Roman colony settled by soldiers. And so it's kind of an extra space created. It was like a central hub for trade and commerce, much like Boulder, it's like a little big city. And so there's this massive, kind of small, big-town vibe. A lot of things went through Philippi, and there's lots of permissible spirituality with a primary worship of the emperor, meaning they didn't really care what you did as long as you called, like, the emperor God. Like, you could have other gods as long as this is your primary worship, which is why eventually Paul is in prison for, for, for saying, hey, Jesus is the one true God. And so in the same place, we have City Church having a very similar story. And as he talks to the leaders and he acknowledges the whole community, check out this next part. This is super cool. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ grace to you this is kind of his opening letter which you guys have lost formality you and i we've lost formality in letter writing but grace to you this is really important that word means unmerited love and favor specifically from god toward you and this is the most clear demonstration this is the word connected to jesus himself that grace is not something we earn. We don't earn God's affection or love. We receive it and it changes us. Religion says, do these things so that God loves you. And grace says, God loves you and it empowers you to do these things. It's a very different posture. And grace to you. And then he says, peace from God our Father. And this is really important. Paul chooses his language intentionally. You see this over and over again in all of his letters. For God, or for, for Paul, you can't have the peace of God if you have not experienced the grace of God. That, that, that's the enti- over and over again. There is no peace with God if you have not, ex- I'm sorry, th- there is no peace with God if you have not experienced His grace. This is a really beautiful picture because he's given this posture of our Father, this God who loves you, who sent Jesus to live the life that you and I can't live, to die the death that we deserve, to be raised and give us new life. And lastly, he ends in the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, kind of back to that master language. Yes, Jesus is a friend of sinners, but he's also Lord and master. So this is the space, this is the posture of Paul's opening to this church. So why is this important? Because in all of this, he has given us keys to the good life. He's given us some hints here and there about what informs a life from languishing to flourishing. And if you don't get anything else today, this is what I need you to understand. Identity informs activity. Identity informs our activity. Who you are informs what you do, what you think, what your hands and your mouth produce. Who God says that I am, who God says I'm becoming, it has the potential to inform my focus, my thoughts, the affections of my heart, the activity of my hands. And so a lot of us get our hearts set on changing and becoming a certain version of ourselves and we experience frustration in the process. And for Paul and for Jesus, It's a a foundation of identity that allows us then to begin to change from the inside out. And so servants and saints who have experienced grace and have God's peace. So those are realities. If If you're a follower of Jesus today, those are theological realities over your life. The question is, are you and I walking in them and experiencing them? Do you feel like a saint? Do you act like a servant? do you have God's peace? Are you grateful for God's grace? Right? And, and, and in that space of languishing, those are very absent for me in my own heart. Those can be realities that I set aside and I don't walk in. And so a few themes that I want to give you before we land the plane today is how we get to the place of identity. What kind of things are produced when you and I begin to focus on who God calls us to be? who he says that we are. There's a couple of themes that we're gonna see throughout this book, and I'm trying to help you kind of see a picture of where we're going over the entire summer. Number one, we're gonna see spiritual mentoring come up over and over again. You you and I have to have an example of what we're after, right? It's not enough to say, cool, I'm a saint. So I guess we're done? Is that how it works? Like, ta-da? Or is there someone I'm still becoming? over the weekend, um, we've had some family in town, been having a great time, and uh, it's been super cool to hang out with family, and my kids are hanging out, and they're getting older, and, and my kids are awesome. Like, I love my kids, and it's so cool to watch who they're becoming, but also I'm watching them learn how to interact, and so they get around family, and they get around, you know, a cool cousin that they're trying to be cool around, and all of a sudden, they're acting in ways that they don't normally act, right? They got, there's just some little attitude problems, behavior things here and there, things they don't normally do, and I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, and, and, and part of me is confused, and then part of me remembers, oh yeah, like, I do that too. I'm just an adult, and I, I hide it better, right? Like, and I'm like, oh, okay, so, so what's going on? And there's been a couple of moments when I've had to get down and say, hey, hey man, listen, that, that's not who you are. You don't act like that. That's not, that's not how you normally respond. What's, what's going on on the inside? Hey, hey you, you, seem, you seem like, like something's going on, like you're sad. What's, what's going on? That's not who you are. I'm having conversations around their identity. That I'm looking at their activity, and I'm saying, that's not who you are. There's something that's causing you to act out of character with who you really are. You guys tracking with me? You guys ever feel like, like there's a space of who you really are, and then there's activity? You're like, what am I doing? <laughs> Why did I say that? What, what What's going on with my face? Right? Like, you have those spaces where, where there's just something out of alignment with who God says that you are, who you're becoming. And one of the things over and over again that we're going to see in the book of Philippians is a model, both from Paul and Timothy and then for the whole church, of who we're becoming. Listen, if you set your model for following Jesus on the average American Christian who goes to church one time a month, kind of gives some pithy you know, bumper stickers and doesn't really have all that different of a life from the rest of the world around him, that's not really going to lead to flourishing. And you can probably figure that out on your own. But if you and I set a model, something much better, set our affection on something higher, then there is someone we can become. And that's God's desire. I love how John Tyson said it. He said, if you're looking at your faith, if you're bored with your faith, God is bored with your faith. And I was like, dang, that hurts in such a good way. Like, I love that. If you're bored with your faith, God is bored with your faith. And you're looking around, and you're like, oh man, this following Jesus thing is not all that I thought it would be. In some ways, that might be true. But at the same time, if you're kind of looking around, you're like, wow, this is kind of, I'm kind of languishing. God's like, you chose to stop there. That's not what I have for you. And listen, this is not casting a up and to the right, you know, life is all gravy with Jesus. Like, sometimes it's hard. Jesus definitely has the good life, and he also calls us to love our enemies. That part's not so fun, but it still leads to flourishing. And so you and I are invited to learn and model under what we see in philippians number two you're gonna see joy joy is a major theme in the book of philippians one of my favorite things to do is to kind of pick on grumpy religious people um, and and i don't know why that is there's just something inside of me that loves to do that so so and it might i'll pray about it later and see if jesus is cool with it but right now you know you ever like look at a really religious person but they just like like don't that, that joy joy down in your heart thing they don't have it <laughs> And, and like, you know, if you're happy and you know it, tell your face. That's my favorite. I need a t-shirt with that one on it. And so in that space, joy, like actual joy. Again, and, and despite circumstances, things like that, if the circumstances in your life are your only like source of joy, then they're constantly going to be changing, right? And you know that. If your health fails and you lose the job, all those different things we talked about hanging our hat on, if those are the source of joy, we lose it. But listen, who's writing the letter over and over again, he's like, joy, 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 rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. And the dude is writing from prison. And you're like, what? How, how, do, you have, how do you have joy? And you look at Jesus, who was betrayed by one of his closest followers, and joy? We're, well, it can't be from our circumstances, so where do we get it? Jesus has something so much better for the condition of our heart than setting it on the moving circumstances of our life. And so you and I have something to look forward to, to set our joy on a foundation that can be true regardless of circumstance. And another big theme is going to be unity over and over again. This is one of those beautiful places in like chapter 2 where he talks about how Jesus came in the posture of a humble servant. Because Jesus served me, I have the privilege of serving you. Imagine thinking about it like this. like, I don't. You might not have walked in like this today, but imagine if you walked in with this posture. You ever been in the room and you're like, I can't believe I get to be in the room with this person. You ever been in like a room like that with someone super famous? Like a, a couple of years ago, um, I was at like a pastor's conference and I was, at, I was in the room with one of my like, like heroes of the faith. His name is Mark Driscoll. And he like, I like learned how to like teach the Bible from that dude. And he like just was so good. And then like, uh, we're sitting on the front row in this pastor's conference. And then one of my, one of my buddies that's on staff at the church where he leans over and he says, don't freak out. But Mark Driscoll just walked in the back of the room and I'm like, <gasps> You know, I didn't listen very good. And so I freaked out and then I ran back there and then I shook his hand and then I did that awkward like How are you? I don't know what to do with my hands. You know, I had that moment. Um and then later we had a buntini together. That was cool, me and Mark Driscoll. And so I say all that to say there was this like high level of honor in my heart. I was really excited to be around one of my like heroes when it comes to preaching Jesus and and following Jesus and modeling Jesus for me. And Paul calls the church to that same level of love because of how Jesus treated us. Can can you imagine if you and I walked in and then the person sitting next to you all around the room, you're like, I can't believe I get to be in the room with Trisha today. Oh my goodness, I, I get to be in the room with Dan that is amazing. I can't believe they even let me in this place, right? Like, that's the posture of unity that a servant's heart produces. Now, if you're honest, and if I'm honest, that's probably not the place we walk in. That's the place we can learn to walk in. That's the invitation of unity, and it's beautiful, What's really ironic is that in the middle of him talking about unity, there's like people fighting in the church. And we can assume it's some leaders in the church because they get the attention, like it would have kind of been public. So he's writing saying, hey, these two ladies are some really strong personalities and influential women that are leaders in the church. And he's like, hey, you two, figure it out. (laughs) That's what he says, right? And so it's really helpful. He's like, hey, there's unity and there's going to be conflict and you can work through it because Jesus is worth it. And so is the person on the other side of that conflict. Life in Jesus reprioritizes the space that you and I think about community and loving others. Another big theme is simply the beauty of Jesus, the beauty of Jesus, that Jesus is literally more than enough, that if you and I could get our hearts and our affections captivated by something bigger than what's around us, then we're going to find the key to these spaces. Paul says later, I have lost everything for Jesus and I love it. I'm like, why, wait, hold, hold on. Like, that's not a tattoo I've signed up for yet. I've lost everything for Jesus, and I love it. And there's a beauty in Jesus that's meant to be captured, that captures our affection. It begins to change how we live. And, and, another, and lastly, another theme that we're gonna see over and over again is suffering. I'm like, dang it. Like, why is that one in there? Over and over again, Paul from prison with his life on the line, says rejoice, I'm flourishing, (laughs) like you don't look flourishing to me, you look like you're wilting, but there's something, there's a secret to following Jesus that's not so secret, so as Isaac comes and he prepares for, to lead us in some response time, as you and I worship together, I'm just calling you to a few simple next steps, number one, on our next steps today, Invite God into wherever you are today. Today is simply to give you a foretaste of where we're going. This letter is to real people in a real place that we're following Jesus, just like you and I are trying to practice the way of Jesus together in Boulder. And no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, I just want to invite you to today invite God into wherever you are today. This is really important. Because God cannot or will not transform who you pretend to be. He's only going to meet the real you. And one of the most challenging spaces for me is even admitted, admitting that I've been in a place of languishing. And I don't stay there very long, but it's a space that rather than ignoring and hoping goes away, God has, has had to meet me in and says, hey, this is where you are. And this is who I'm calling you to be. And so wherever you are today, if you're languishing, if you're flourishing, but but you realize that some of the things you set your flourishing on are shakable and movable and are not guaranteed, or if you're in the zone leaning toward depression, wherever you find yourself on the, on the spectrum, invite God into that place and be honest between you and God, because he can't transform who you pretend to be and who I pretend to be a couple of ways that you can do that. As we begin to sing, as we begin to respond, you can sit by yourself, palms open in your lap, beginning to process, God, this is what I've been holding on to. This is what I'm scared of. This is what I'm struggling with. This is what I'm frustrated with. This feels out of my control. I don't know what to do with this. I'm confused by this. I'm angry about this. Whatever those things are, you just begin to meet God and invite him into those places. But also we have a prayer team in the back that would love to join you in prayer over those spaces. And I need wisdom, I need direction, I need understanding in my career, I need help in my relationships, I need God's guidance in my finances, I need provision, I need encouragement, I need community, whatever those spaces are, our prayer team would love to pray for you. No matter where you are, listen, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, the invitation today is to trust in Jesus. That Paul's entire foundation is not try really hard to get to joy, but to start with Jesus because he is the access point into joy and the good life. So if you've never made a decision to trust in the person and work of Jesus on your behalf, you've never received the grace of God, then today is your chance to do that. You will experience the peace of God, peace with God, peace working through you to bring peace in your relationships. That's the invitation. The second thing is to read a chapter from Philippians daily this week, to begin to get a scope from this letter to let God begin to speak to you as you walk through this letter. We encourage you to get along with God daily uh, uh, throughout the week anyway. And so I'm just encouraging you to pick up the book of Philippians this week. It's only four chapters. And read just a chapter a day with that scripture journal. Take some notes, highlight, mark it up. Just begin to process with God and see what he highlights in your heart. And lastly, join a city group. If you've not already, if you're not already in a group, you haven't gone online and signed up for a group, I'd encourage you to join a city group because that's the space that you're known, that's the space that you're loved, that's the space that you're seen. It's the place you can be safely vulnerable, it's the place that you can be accountable. It's where you can begin to share some of the stuff going on in your life, and other people are going to point you toward Jesus and walk with you in it. It's the place where, as people get to know you, they can call out the identity that we're talking about. Hey, that's not who you really are. Hey, think on these things like Paul would say in Philippians 4. Focus your heart and your mind and your affections here. Community. Through city groups as we follow Jesus and make disciples. That's the space. So if you're not in, one sign up. So wherever you are, let's invite you to invite God to meet you in this place. And let him do whatever he wants. Let me pray for you. Will you bow your heads with me? we just do this in a moment of privacy, a moment of of removing distraction in the room, to get quiet with ourselves and God? Holy Spirit, we invite you right now to meet us in this place. We're grateful that you're already here and you're already working. ask for the humility to be honest with ourselves and honest with you. Maybe you're calling us to be honest with someone else who loves us and loves you so that they can provide help and encouragement. Maybe you're moving us to receive prayer today to invite others to join us in that space. Maybe it's simply receiving and surrendering in the seat where we're sitting. Maybe it's trusting in you today for the first time. Jesus, I believe that you're God, that you died for me, that you rose again to give me a new life, to forgive me of sin, to make me new. And I want to trust in you today. Maybe it's taking the next step in our spiritual journey with you after trusting you, getting baptized, of celebrating externally what you've done on the inside. God, whatever it is, We want to say thank you for your grace. We invite your peace. Amen.